Well, welcome back to The Breakdown with Senator James Langford. I am Senator James Langford from Oklahoma. We normally take the big issues of the day and break them down, and that's what we're doing again today. The big issue of the day right now, and a lot of the conversation, is about a Supreme Court case coming December the 1st. It's called the Dobbs case, and it's a significant case because it asks a really interesting question in our culture. And since the 1973 Roe v. Wade decision, it asks a very big deal. It is, what does the word viability mean? Is viability important in the life of a child? And not only is viability important in the life of a child, is it important in the law? What does that mean for a state? What does that mean for the federal government? What does that mean for this decision in 1973 with Roe v. Wade? So we're gonna take a big issue as we normally do and break it down into its parts. And we're gonna to try to make you the smartest kid at the water cooler or at the Zoom meeting, wherever you may be able to hang out with folks right now. So as, you, as we go through this conversation, I want you to know we're going to walk through and take a scientific look at what's actually happening in the womb. And the person that we brought in to do it is a person well qualified uh, to be able to sit here with us, to be able to be in that conversation. So thank you very much for joining me. This is Dr. Christina Francis. Uh, she is an OBGYN from Fort Wayne, Indiana. Mm -hmm. uh, she has delivered thousands of babies over the years. She happens to be the chair of the board for the American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs. That's mm -hmm. a mouthful uh, to be able to get all that out. But you've also served not only in Indiana and have served traveling around the country, getting a chance to be able to speak out for children mm -hmm. and child development. Uh, but you've also served in Burma, in Romania, in Israel. You spent three years in Kenya as mm -hmm. an OBGYN. Uh, giving your time away and to be able to serve people. Uh, that's a remarkable heritage. So I thank, thank you, you for what you've done for children and for families and uh, for how you've continued to be able to engage. And thanks for joining us here on The Breakdown. We'll get a chance to be able to talk about this crazy, crazy Dobbs case that yeah. everyone's kind of talking yeah. about right now uh, to say, what is this? What does it mean to be able to talk about the issue of life and yeah. what does life really mean even? And the interesting thing is in 1973, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, uh, at that time said, well, we want to help define when life begins, mm -hmm. which no Supreme Court has ever done before. And uh, it's I'm fascinated with the number of people that they, uh, when they talk about Roe v. Wade, they talk about, well, abortion's always been legal in America. Mm -hmm. And I look at it and go, well, that, that's kind of true in some ways, but it's been states made that decision. Mm -hmm. uh, there wasn't a constitutional right on it. Pre-1973 Roe v. Wade, there were some states that allowed abortion and some states that did not. Then in 1973, the court said, nope, every state has to allow abortion, but we're going to add this new feature in that says viability is out there. Right. Uh, but then they also jumped in on this issue of viability and said states can make a decision after viability, uh, but before viability, we're going to impose on every single state that they have to require abortion. Mm -hmm. So the one big question on this Dobbs case yeah. is this interesting conversation of the Dobbs case is about a child 15 weeks old. Can the state of Mississippi be involved in protecting the life of a child at 15 weeks, which drives right, right at this issue that's before viability. Right. So can a state be involved in that? And they're going to work to be able to answer that question. So mm -hmm. we thought it'd be fun to come in as somebody that's kind of a baby expert. <laughs> sure. uh, and when we start talking about viability, to be able to yeah. come pick your brain on it and to be able to talk about child development yeah. and what's actually happening in the womb. But you've been very involved in this. This is not new to you. You've right. obviously seen lots of children over the years. I have. What, what does this mean and how did you get involved in this movement and this conversation about the life of children? Sure. Well, you know, the thing that drew me to the practice of OBGYN is, I think, what draws most people to this practice, which was delivering babies. Um, you know, the first delivery I saw as a medical student, I didn't know the woman. I was just shadowing a physician and I was standing in the room and just 
sobbing because I thought it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. Just this Be miracle of birth. Beautiful and terrifying. Beautiful as and terrifying. Yes. actually been in the room as well. <laughs> it's right. beautiful and terrifying. That's right. Time. That's right. Beautiful and terrifying. And you know, there was this seasoned labor and delivery nurse who was in the room and I wish I could go back and find her. Maybe she's listening to this podcast. If she is, I hope that she hears this, but um, who looked at me and said, oh honey, if this makes you cry, you need to do this for a living. And that's really, it changed the course of my life. And it's what made me decide to do OBGYN. But you know, there, there's lots of things that we do as OBGYNs to take care of women, to maximize their health, um, to help them make healthy choices. But th my favorite thing that I do is taking care of women during their pregnancies and um, helping them through the, the just beautiful event that happens at the time of delivery. Um, but it's a complex process. And one of the reasons why my field is as complex as it is, is because we're taking care of two patients right. when we take care of pregnant women. In fact, a lot of physicians in other specialties don't really like taking care of pregnant women because that other patient scares them a little yeah. bit. So, um, you know, any physician who takes care of pregnant women who's being honest will acknowledge that um, when we take care of a, a pregnant woman, we're actually caring for two patients and trying to maximize both of their health. Yeah, which yeah. Uh, obviously anything that goes into the mom's body also affects that other body uh, that is right. there as well. And right. so Absolutely. what medicine she can take, uh, what treatment she can do, how she's taking care of herself, what she's eating, all of those things matter. Yeah. How, how early is that what they call fetal development? How early can you pick that up? When, when are those tissues in that baby different than the mom's tissues? It's a great question. So, and this is actually something, you know, I think a lot of people probably think, well, we don't really know an exact point in time. You know, that's kind of during the Roe v. Wade decision, that was right. what they alluded to, that we don't know this exact point in time. We actually do, and it's not debated in scientific circles anymore. Um, we know that at the moment of fertilization, a new distinct living and whole human being comes into existence. And this is this is scientific fact now. This, again, no longer debated. So, so this is not 1973 science. This is modern science now to be able to track this. Absolutely, right. absolutely. We know that. So um, at that moment in time, you don't have a fertilized egg. The egg ceases to exist. The sperm ceases to exist. You have a new human organism, even that single-celled zygote, you know, all of us looked exactly the same the moment we came into existence, and that was as a single-celled zygote. But that zygote has everything that he or she needs in order to become the fully developed human being they're one day going to be, and they're fully human from that moment of fertilization, completely different from their mom, because if, if it's a male zygote, then that male zygote has a different sex than his mom mm -hmm. and has a different DNA makeup than his mom because half of his DNA has come from his father. So at that precise moment is when we can pinpoint that a new human life comes so into existence. So every cell at that point is basically has the same uh, makeup, the same DNA in a woman's body at that point, except for that cell. Right. That one cell that one is cell. different, and then it starts dividing and multiplying out. Absolutely, yeah. And then it just, you know, it begins this amazing process that, um, you know, I read something once that if we continue to develop at the rate that we do when we're in utero, especially in the first trimester, all of us would be giants, you know, because they're just undergoing this massive rate of development. But it's all self-directed, which is really amazing. So that single-celled zygote, no one's telling that zygote what to do next. It's all self-directed, that mm -hmm. development that occurs throughout the nine months of pregnancy, but then also occurs even after we're born. You know, development doesn't stop, of I, course, I, when we're I born. I have two daughters. I've had two two-year-olds. They're still self-directed, even at that moment as well in their own development. But in those earliest days, okay, mm -hmm. so walk me through some of the markers there. You talk about that single cell yeah. and the cell division that occurs. 
when do you start seeing some markers in the development of that child? Is it at 20 weeks that things really get different? Or I suspect it's, it's much earlier than that. It, it really is. And, you know, with advancements in technology, we've been able to see even this happening in real time by being able to put cameras into a woman's uterus, you know, during surgery and things like that. But what we do know is that about three weeks after fertilization, that baby's heart begins to beat. Um, it's not an electrical impulse. It is, in fact, a heart that is beating. And that begins at about three weeks. At about six weeks, you get start to get um, brain wave activity that's noted as the spinal cord is forming and the brain is starting to form. Arms and legs are forming at that point as well. Um, at about 10 weeks or so, the baby is moving, able to bring his or her hands together in the midline, almost like clapping. And you can see that on ultrasound even. You see baby bouncing around in there with that little heart just ticking away. And, you know, by 15 weeks, which is pertinent for this specific case, for the Dobbs case, by 15 weeks, babies have um, their fingerprints already. They have uh, fingernails that are starting to form. They've got their eyebrows. They're starting to get eyelashes. They can um, even, you can even tell at that point um, whether or not it's going to be a boy or a girl just based on, you know, external genitalia. So all of that is formed at that point in time. By so 15 weeks. By 15 weeks. Okay. Mm -hmm. so all of the organs are fully formed. They, mm -hmm. they just need to grow. They so. just need to get bigger. Mm -hmm. So babies are breathing even while they're in the womb at that right. point. They're just breathing amniotic fluid. Right. Uh, it's helping development. When do they start taking breaths like that that you've seen? Yeah, well, so right around that time, yeah. you can start to see some some sort of primitive breathing movements, you know, mm -hmm. some small breathing movements, and you're absolutely right. They're breathing that amniotic fluid in and out of their lungs. They may not be able to breathe on their own without assistance outside of mom yet, but they're already doing that inside of mom. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, there's been a lot of conversation about surgeries uh, on mm -hmm. children and when they can feel pain mm -hmm. and how do you do a surgery. There's some remarkable stories of surgeries. Uh, on children while they're in the womb, sometimes yeah. uh, through the camera and then trying to be able to reach in, yeah. sometimes actually having to open the womb to be mm -hmm. able to reach into the child. That That's just remarkable advances in science to be able to do that. Absolutely. W when do they start actually, as you say, treating that second patient as well mm -hmm. there to be able to make sure they feel pain and if they're going to do a surgery on that child in the womb, they need to make sure they take extra care. Yeah, it, you know, it's a great question because people who've been doing surgery on babies in utero have known this for a long time, that they need to give that baby anesthesia. Um, and so really from the point in time in pregnancy where they start doing surgeries, which depending on the condition is typically around 18 to 20 weeks, where they might start doing these interventions, they give baby anesthetic to, to reduce their pain. Um, and they don't just give them anesthetic to make them sleepy so they don't move. They also give yeah. them pain relief um, yeah. because it's well known that babies at that stage can feel pain and actually just recently there was um, a researcher Dr. Derbyshire who his work actually is relied upon by most of the major medical organizations who deny that fetal pain exists hmm. um, prior to the third trimester so back in 2010 he wrote a paper um, calling it uh, just a, an emotional issue basically this is a ridiculous oh. notion that that fetuses can feel pain he actually now, after reviewing the most up-to-date literature, has actually retracted that statement. Um, he still is pro-choice. He's not a pro-life researcher, which I think is an important point to make, but he's being truthful and honest, and he's acknowledging that fetuses can feel pain. 
definitely as early as 12 weeks gestation, possibly even sooner. Um, they just process it in a different way than we do as adults, um, but they very definitely can feel pain. So even a, a child, I've heard, even if they get poked in the womb, if there's some instrument there, they get poked, they'll recoil from it and they'll move back from it. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Yeah. And that starts as early as when, you think? So um, there's been documented cases back when we used to do something called um, CVS or chorionic villus sampling, which was done very early, like in the first trimester for genetic testing. Um, there's documented cases then, which those are typically done at eight to 10 weeks of the baby being hit with the needle that was being mm -hmm. inserted um, into the placenta and, and withdrawing from mm -hmm. that. So, um, you know, it's, it's difficult to do testing, obviously, on babies right. that are that young, you but we definitely have yeah. documentation of that yeah. yeah it's hard yeah. to be able to ask them and get an answer at that that's point, right they're a young, <laughs> that's right uh, that's to be right able to respond to it from there so the, the, the child is developing that's remarkable development mm -hmm. and then that's the first and really the middle of the second trimester so right. the third trimester starts about what week so third trimester starts at 28 weeks okay. um, and you know it's interesting you bring up trimesters too because these the, the whole trimester system actually was put into place by the justices who who made the Roe v. Wade decision to try and delineate when it's they could different. allow abortions and when restrictions could be placed and things like that. So, yeah. So is that term used much anymore? Or is it still um, pretty common? So we, second, we do trimester? actually use it now, yeah. yes, in the in the medical field, but it didn't start out, it didn't start out in that way. So they're relatively arbitrary um, right. distinctions. Uh, through pregnancy, so but yes, the third trimester starts about 28 weeks. So if when the justice in 1973 and they were debating this whole issue about when to define life and when are we going to impose on states to say you have to allow abortion at this point because the child's not really alive, right? Or the states can make decisions later on on this. They put out a statement on viability. Mm -hmm. uh, viability in 1973, I assume, is very different than viability now, even Absolutely. just at that. But it, there's nothing in law that talks about viability. There's nothing in the Constitution that right. talks about viability. Literally, the justices came up with this on their own and said, right. we're just going to set this standard out there. They could have set the standard just as clearly as when it's a zygote and the first cell division occurred right. because right. that's clearly when there's something there. But they didn't understand the science at mm -hmm. that point. Uh, there was... It was not as much understanding, I, I should say, in 1973. Yeah. There were many people that were very passionate, even in 1973, to say, before viability, that's still a child. Absolutely. So let, let's talk a little bit about the viability mm -hmm. age and how that time has moved. Yeah. So you're right. You know, at the time of Roe v. Wade in 1973, viability was basically about 28 weeks. So okay. the beginning of the third, third trimester. trimester. Yep. Yeah. Um, since then, we have, over the last 50 years, science has just progressed in medical science an amazing amount. And, you know, when I started, I've been in practice now for about 12 years. When I started my residency training, viability was probably 24 to 25 weeks, depending on what hospital you were at. Now we have a baby who just celebrated his first birthday in this country who was born at 21 weeks and two wow. days. He's a little bit of an exception to the rule. I'm not saying that all babies born at 21 weeks survive, but but now viability really is down to about 22 weeks. So we've shifted by a full six weeks down to um, you know where we can get babies to survive. And the interesting thing, if you look at the data, is that yes, gestational age is uh, impacts survivability. So obviously the earlier a baby's born, the, the lesser their chances of survival. However, if a baby is born at 22 weeks at an institution who has 
a solid protocol in place for how they're going to actively manage these micro preemies, they can have really good survival rates. So there's a, a place in Iowa that has survival rates upwards of 70 plus percent at wow. 22 weeks. Um, and another study that was done around the same time, these are all studies from 2019-2020, showed that in addition to gestational age, where a baby is born has just as much impact on whether or not they survive. Mm -hmm. And that's even within the United States. And so what that tells us is that for hospitals that say babies can't survive until at least 24 weeks, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy because they don't do anything to help the babies younger than that because that's their cutoff for viability. But when you have a hospital that is willing to do interventions for these babies that are born even at 22 weeks, what we see is their survival rates go up, which I think makes sense. So, so not only has that viability line shifted significantly in the last 50 years, but it's also completely arbitrary and we can see that within the United States because what's viability at one hospital may not be viability at another hospital. You know, you mentioned I practiced in Kenya for three years. At the hospital where I was at, we had very little that we could do for premature infants. And so our viability age was closer to about 30 weeks. Sometimes we would have 28-weekers who would survive. But, you know, their viability was 30 weeks. So this is a completely arbitrary line. And to decide who lives and who dies based on such an arbitrary line is just not consistent, I think, with the values of this country or, or what they should be. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've talked before about uh, two women that are walking down the same street on opposite sides of the street. Mm -hmm. Both of them are about 21 weeks mm -hmm. pregnant. Mm -hmm. They're both walking down the street. One of them is heading to her workplace where they're about to do a baby shower mm -hmm. for her. The other one is heading to an abortion clinic to go take that baby's life. Mm -hmm. I've asked the simple question, what's different about those two babies? They're at the same age. Absolutely. One is being celebrated mm -hmm. and they're preparing gifts for it. And the other one is literally being destroyed in the womb. Mm -hmm. There's no difference, right? So you, you, you talk about an arbitrary issue. When you, when you talk about viability, viability is different place to place, region mm -hmm. to region, country to country. But yeah. the child was still the same right. child there. Absolutely. Uh, is there anything different? And you mentioned this before, when that child is developing, the organs are there at young age, everything else, everything's just smaller and right. still developing. Right. From that child, let's say at 10 minutes old, mm -hmm. uh, versus 10 weeks or 20 weeks or 30 weeks, is there anything different to that child other than time? No, you know, I mean, we are essentially the same people that we were when we were a single-celled zygote as we are now. We look different, but our essence of who we are, our DNA makeup, our human nature is exactly the same as it was the moment we came into existence. And just like you said, the only difference is size, level of development, environment, where we're at, we're ex utero as opposed to in right. utero, and degree of dependency. We were very dependent when we were in utero. We're not as dependent now, although I would argue that all of us are dependent on other Somebody people for, right. yeah, exactly, for something. But you know, if you take any of these arguments that are used to justify abortion, whether it be that they're smaller than us, you know, you have to have a microscope to see them when they're at that gestational age, or whether it be that they're completely dependent upon their mother for their survival. You can make those same arguments and apply them to newborns. And I think, right. you know, most people listening to this would, even if they support abortion rights, probably wouldn't support infanticide, but it's really, like you said, it's the same person. They're just at a different level of development. And so we really need to recognize the personhood and the worth of human beings 
from the moment of fertilization. It's the only way that we accomplish true human equality because the only thing that we all share in equal degrees is our human nature and that comes into existence at the moment we came into existence. Yeah. So. All right, you've given me a new term to describe myself as an ex-utero human being. That's so right. I've, I've, not, That's <clears throat> right. I've not considered describing myself as ex-utero until uh, this moment. <laughs> so for, the, for that child, and, and you talked about it before, what's really infanticide, mm -hmm. uh, if you take a child that's three days old out of the womb, ex-utero, mm -hmm. uh, in, that, in that way, very dependent. Uh, in the ancient world, they would have children. If they didn't want them, they would call expose them, and they mm -hmm. just put them out in the elements, and they would let them die on their own right. uh, to exposure. Um, that that was that was infanticide at that mm -hmm. moment. We, we don't practice that anymore because we understand the humanity of that child. Right. Uh, a child that's delivered, that you see that you're holding in your hand that's crying, mm -hmm. and a child 25 minutes before right. that's still in the womb. Is there a difference between that child? Is there something that happens that flips the switch on that child that when they're in the womb, they're not really alive? But when they come out of the womb, there's a, a, a switch that flips and now they are alive. Is there any real difference in that 25 minute time period there? There, you know, there really isn't. The, you know, the, the process of birth is miraculous and it's magical, but there's nothing miraculous or magical about the passage that that baby takes um, that suddenly changes the baby from not human or not a person or not deserving of our protections to someone who is. Um, and I think you know a good way for people to think about this is now that we can support these babies born very, very early, you know, what's the difference between a baby who's born and outside of his or her mother at 23 weeks and a baby who's still inside of his or her mother? Right. That baby inside of his mother can still be killed through abortion in most states in this country. In fact, in all 50 states, if you have the right reason for doing it, you know, that qualifies them under the law. So, but yet when they're born, they're exactly the same person. And yeah. I have a good friend who's a neonatologist, so she takes care of these premature infants. And she talks about when she takes care of these babies at 23, 24 weeks, they still have basically fetal physiology, meaning the physiology of how their body's working is exactly the same when they're outside of mom as it was when they were inside of mom. Mm -hmm. um, and so that just shows they're just going, they continue to go through that process of development, whether they're outside of the uterus or inside. The difference is we get a chance to be able to see them with their eyes rather right. than through equipment from there. Right. So you, you mentioned a little bit on just the birth process itself. Mm -hmm. For my two daughters, I still remember sitting with my wife and we would go through the different classes and everything mm -hmm. preparing mm -hmm. for birth. And I could still remember the class when they started talking about the actual birth process. <laughs> and as, as a guy, I'm sitting there just aghast processing through all of this right. and what my wife is experiencing, but also the miracle of it. Mm -hmm. It is such a, a unique ballet. Uh, to watch that child actually in delivery and the child's movement mm -hmm. and the mom and the whole delivery process that's there and how terrifying and beautiful it is at the right. same moment yeah. on that. Walk us through a little bit the child's experience. The mom's experience is, doesn't look very much like fun uh, in the process. Uh, it is, uh, as, as, the scripture, as the scripture talks about, the pain of childbirth is overcome by the joy of holding the child. Right. That's uh, at right. the end of it, but it's still right. the pain of childbirth is still there. Right. Walk me through a little bit what that child is actually doing as it's time the child drops down in the birth canal and then the ballet starts. Yeah, well, it is such an amazing process. And, you know, I hate to say this because I'm an OBGYN and my job is to deliver babies. But honestly, when things go like they're supposed to go, mm -hmm. I don't even need to be there. 
which right. is really amazing. Now, there are times when they don't go like they're supposed so to go, and that's, that's what I yes. need to be there. That's right. But, um, but it, you know, it really is amazing to just see that process. And I can't imagine, I've, I've said to many of my patients that I think it's probably good that we don't remember our own births. Yes. Because it has to be quite traumatic, actually, for the baby as well. Yeah. You know, they go from this quiet, warm, dark, safe environment, you know, out into this cold, bright, loud world. And it, it has to be fairly shocking to them, you know, where am I now? But um, but yeah, I mean, as they come through, again, if, if things go like they're supposed to, they know the position to get into. There's a very definite position that a baby should come out that makes mm-hmm. the, the smallest diameter of their head come through the birth canal right. so that they can come through easier. And they, I've sat there as a baby's crowning and watched that head just spin into the right position so that the baby can come out. And they're doing all that on their own. I'm not right. doing it, you know. And mom I mean, she's pushing and she's working hard, but she's not doing anything, you know, with position of baby. So it really just is amazing the way we were created, the way that process was created. Um, And, you know, it's a really neat time to be able to be with a patient and with their family. I I count it an extreme honor to be able to be with families during that time. Um, There are times when it's very sad and when it's sad, it's really devastatingly sad. But it's still an honor to get to be there with those families, even through those really, really tough times. And, you know, as we talk about abortion, you know, it it becomes, it's obviously this very politicized issue, even though it shouldn't be. We're talking about life and life shouldn't be a political issue. Um, But, you know, when we really step back and look at the devastation that it's causing my patients, that it's causing this country, that it's causing our society, not only through the destruction of innocent human life, which I think has ripple effects far beyond probably what any of us know on just our culture and and how we view things in general. But I also am devastated to see my female patients that are being lied to by the abortion industry. They're being told that this is empowering for them. They're being told that this is good for them, um, that it's easy, that it's safe. And we know that nothing could be further from the truth. And so, you know, there's really this double devastation. I think it was Mother Teresa that said that, you know, three quarters of of abortion victims are women um, because all of the women that are going through abortions obviously are women and then half of the babies. And so, you know, she acknowledged that Obviously, my main objection to abortion is that it ends the life of an innocent human being, um, but it also has devastating effects on that child's mother. And, um, you know, that's why I think that it's so important that our uh, Supreme Court, that our country takes an honest second look at this issue to understand that the science has come along so much in the last 50 years that now we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that that's a human life. Um, far before this, you know, nebulous idea of viability, but also how many women in our country and around the world have been permanently um, impacted in a negative way by their abortion decisions and now are having to deal with that fallout in their lives. And um, so, you know, I think it's it's far beyond time, but I, I am excited that this case is before the court and really hoping that they will listen to the science that is out there, that is very clear, um, when it wasn't maybe so clear 50 years ago, but it, it is now. Yeah, it's yeah. very clear now. I, I've talked often about a mom sitting in, a mom that had an abortion, that's sitting in um, a food court of a mall or in a restaurant or wherever mm-hmm. it may be, 
and a child comes running past them that's about six years old and all she could think in the back of her mind at different moments is that's how old my child would be right mm -hmm. now um, you know 18 years after an abortion she's gonna think they would be graduating right now right. you know what they would be like right that's that that's not something you just lose track of right uh, and I, I have people that I talk to that will talk about uh, the mental health of the mom mm -hmm. and her own personal struggles, struggles and sorrows and the abortionist that will just say, just tissue, don't think about it. Right. That's not something a mom could just set aside. That's no. not something you just you, you never think about again. Uh, I have great compassion for those moms mm -hmm. because I can't imagine the personal struggle that they go through right. uh, at that moment and for each moment in the days ahead as they think back on that day and that time. Mm -hmm. uh, so for you and the compassion that you have for those moms and still walking them through then actually bringing a child mm -hmm. um, uh, to full delivery at that point, yeah. um, it, it's got to be a moment to really be able to care for some families, uh, and that's a, that's a very unique moment. It is, it is, and you know I think so many of these women who make abortion decisions, they're not making it because they feel like that's what's going to empower them and that's what's going to help them. I mean, really and truly, there uh, so many women make that decision out of desperation because they feel like they just don't have support. And so, you know, as a physician, I've always thought the easiest thing for me to do, the most time efficient thing for me to do when a woman comes into my office and says that she thinks she might want an abortion would be to just give her the number for Planned Parenthood so she can go get her abortion. That would take me 30 seconds to do. But it doesn't help anything. It doesn't help her. It doesn't help her child, certainly. Right. It doesn't help change her life circumstances in any way. You know, she needs to know that she's supported. She needs to know that that child that's growing inside of her is in fact a human being. Right. And, and, you know, all of those developmental milestones that we talked about, um, she needs to truly understand what's going on and, and receive support as opposed to just being told that ending the life of her child is what's best for her. Yeah. yeah. So I know we, we could talk all day because I'm fascinated with the whole process and what you bring to this conversation on the science side of things on life. The, the conversation, as you alluded to before, is really a conversation about, okay, when, when is viability? Mm -hmm. Is that relevant in a legal sense? And you're not trying to make that argument one or the other other than it's totally arbitrary at this point. But if the Supreme Court justices are going to look at the issue of a human being, mm -hmm. in every case there, there's two human beings there. There's a mom and there's a child. Absolutely. And trying to be able to deal with protecting the life of both of those individuals mm -hmm. and being able to honor their future. Uh, I'm fascinated with the number of conversations that I'm in with people that are describing themselves as pro-choice. Mm -hmm. uh, that when I start talking about the child, that I'm amazed at the number of times they'll say to me, I hadn't thought about that. Mm -hmm. because it's always framed as, okay, this is a woman's choice. She gets right. to choose what happens in her body. No one else should control her body. No, it's always no guy should be able to tell me what to be able to do right. with my own body. Um, and I understand all those things, except there's really two human bodies that are there. Absolutely. And I, and I really believe in my gut she knows that. Right. Um, and that, that's not something a mom just can ignore uh, right. at that point, that she knows that there's really two human lives, but trying to be able to deal with processing that becomes its own unique uh, situation. I, I had a conversation uh, last year, actually. Um, it was with a group of folks. We were at a, a women's suffrage event, mm. uh, which were smaller because of COVID sure. uh, last year during that time period. And I remember walking out of the event and saying to two folks that were both pro-choice mm -hmm. uh, as we walked out. And I said, I, I can't imagine 100 years ago, my wife and my daughters couldn't vote. Mm -hmm. I just I can't even process that. Right, That's right. so strange and so foreign to me. And they both said, yeah, I, I can't even process that. I said, I can't process that you go back 100 years before that and we declared some people three-fifths of a man. 
that as a country, we just, some people were fully human, some people were three-fifths of a man. I can't even process that. That's so incredibly foreign to me. Mm -hmm. They both said, yeah, I can't even process that, that we did that as Americans. And then I said, I think there'll be a time 50 years from now, they'll look at this generation mm -hmm. and they'll say, I, I can't process that there was a time in America that we destroyed children because they were inconvenient. Right. That we just declared, not the right time. They're just inconvenient. And we destroyed the life of a child. And both of them, though they're both pro-choice, mm -hmm. both of them looked at me and said, you're probably right. Because I think within our gut, we all know right. that's a child. What are we going to do with that child? Right. So I really appreciate your engagement and for the thousands of babies oh. that you've delivered. Thank and you for, uh, for your conversation that you've had with so many moms and so many families to be able to talk about these issues and to be able to keep the attention on that baby yeah. and to say, mom's super important. This baby's super important as well. Absolutely. What are we going to do uh, to be able to make sure that we protect the lives of both of these folks? December the 1st, uh, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court will hear the oral arguments for the Dobbs case. Yes. Uh, they'll hear those arguments probably hour and a half or so mm -hmm. of arguments with lawyers there. It'll be a very sterile environment with the Supreme Court. It'll just be audio. There'll be no video there. And we'll all hear the case as it goes on. And then they'll take about six months to be able to write right. their arguments out. And so somewhere around June of next year, mm -hmm. the Supreme Court will come out with their decision on what they're going to do with this issue called viability. Right. And if that's something that the Supreme Court's going to continue to abide by or if they're going to say, that's not in the Constitution. Right. We've got to figure out what we're going to do with this in the days ahead. That's the legal argument. The beautiful thing is you're not just talking about abortion as a legal issue. You're talking about it as a science issue right. and a human issue. Right. So I appreciate that very much in Absolutely. your engagement on that, Doctor. Thank really. you for having me. For those of you that are listening in, I hope it's interesting for you to be able to walk a little bit through the science of life and to be able to walk through the value of each individual child. I. Uh, I hope that you'll continue to do your research, quite frankly. For people that have been pro-choice as they describe themselves, I hope you'll take a second look at what's actually happening on the inside there and the two lives uh, that are actually involved. For those of you that describe yourselves as pro-life like I am, I'm very passionate about the life and the value of every single person. Uh, my faith drives me to be able to say every person is created in the image of God and has value and worth. But it's not just my faith, it's also basic science. Uh, mm -hmm. to be able to look at where's the science of a definition of when a child's life actually begins, when there's some uniqueness about this tissue rather than other tissue, and what the differences are as children continue to be able to grow. So I hope you'll take a serious look at all of those things as well. We'll try to keep you up to date. We're going to talk about this several times in the days ahead because there's a lot to be able to talk about on this issue. It is one of our biggest cultural issues that we face as a country is when are we going to value the lives of children and when is a life a life a life? Mm -hmm. And what are we going to do culturally with that? If you're interested in being able to track this, you can always subscribe. You can go to Spotify, you can go to SoundCloud, you can go to iTunes and be able to subscribe to The Breakdown with James Langford. Uh, or we'll try to send you a quick reminder out every once in a while to let you know that it's out there and let you get more information on the days ahead as we continue to dig into this subject little by little over the time that the Supreme Court is doing their work behind the scenes. God bless you. Look forward to the ongoing conversation. If you want to find out more information about what we're doing, you can go to langford.senate.gov. That's our website, langford.senate.gov, or you can follow us on all the social media platforms at, at Senator Langford. God bless you. We'll see you next time on The Breakdown.